Father, this is your holy word. And we pray that as we open our Bibles, that you would speak to us, that we would hear as we are directly hearing Christ. Humble us, instruct us, persuade us that there is no better way than the way of Christ. We ask in his name, amen. Open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 9. Matthew chapter 9. If you don't have a Bible, then maybe sit close to someone with a Bible so you can follow along as we read our text and as we go back and forth and look at a few other passages of Scripture. This will be key for us this morning, specifically in addressing this this topic. There are a lot of really important questions that we ask and asked ourselves throughout our lives. For instance, what are we eating for lunch? Or uh, have you seen my car keys? How about um, where will you go to college? Have you ever thought about that? Or do you take this woman to be your lawful wife? Or, hey, are all the kids in the car? Or, um, when's our anniversary? That's an important one. Um, Or, uh, when you come to the very end of your life, you might be asked, or you might ask, how did he or she pass away? There are an infinite amount of important questions that we must deal with in our lives. If you've had or have the privilege of raising a child, you probably remember the early stage when they're between two and a half and four years of age. This is the age of inquiry. Uh, They don't really make too many statements they only ask questions. That's all they do. It's like you're being interrogated for a year and a half nonstop. (laughs) Why this? Why that? How about this? How about that? And and I am convinced that um, God reserves a special measure of grace for parents just for this time alone. (laughs) Just to be patient and answer all of their questions. You know, Jesus got a lot of questions thrown his way during his ministry, like a parent. He was constantly surrounded by people who questioned everything he did. Already here in Matthew 9, if you're looking at our text here, we've seen two instances where he's asked a question in verse 3 and 4 and in verse 11. And in today's passage, as we look at verses 14 through 17, he's asked another important question concerning the way he and his disciples followed and worshiped God. A very important question, crucial for us to consider. The question is asked by the disciples of John in the very same context as the previous question in verse 11. And look with me at verse 11. The Pharisees had asked Jesus' disciples Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? That's the question of verse 11. Now, the disciples of John, they ask Jesus, why do your disciples eat at all? Not just with tax collectors, at all. These two questions here, they represent two views of holiness. Because fasting was a sign of holiness and Obedience. In the earlier episode here, the Pharisees questioned Jesus' disciples about his fellowship with sinners, something holy people never do. Now, in John's disciples' case here, they come to Jesus and they ask why their disciples don't fast, something holy people always do. See, so, so the topic here is obedience. Topic here is holiness, something contrary. You say you're one thing, Jesus, 
But here we are dealing with disobedience or seeming disobedience, unrighteousness, what is going on? And, and it's interesting when you come to this section here, right? If you have NASB or maybe ESV also, you might have a heading over this section, verses 14 through 17, that says the question about fasting. And so as I began to study this passage, I'm like, all right, let's get all the books out on fasting. Let's figure out what this fasting is all about. On the surface, it seems like he's dealing with fasting, but upon deeper study, you and I will discover that it's not about fasting. This passage is about Jesus and who he claims to be. Much more fundamental and crucial question here. So look at verse 14. We'll read verse 14 through 17, and we will look at this passage. Then the disciples of John came to him asking, why do we and the Pharisees fast? But your disciples do not fast. And Jesus said to them, the attendants of the bridegroom cannot mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them, can they? But the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them and then they will fast. But no one puts a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. For the patch pulls away from the garment and the worst tear results. Nor do people put new wine into old wineskins, otherwise the wineskins burst and the wine pours out and the wineskins are ruined. But they put new wine into fresh wineskins and both are preserved. I want us to see the overall theme and the overall picture that Jesus here presents and, and that is this, that Jesus Christ is not an add-on to an old system, to your old life, but a bridegroom who established a new covenant with his people. Jesus Christ is not a patch. He's not an add-on to what you were previously doing, but he is the bridegroom who came to establish all things new in the way, new way of life. So as we look at this passage, I want us to take away three lessons or three implications from the Christ encounter with the disciples. First of all, first lesson that we can pull from this passage, it is this, rejoice in Christ. He is the promised bridegroom. Rejoice in Christ. He is the promised bridegroom. Now, as we consider uh, this passage, specifically verse 14, we, we need to think about the background information to, to just help us understand what's going on here. First of all, we are told that there are disciples of John, disciples of John, and that is a reference to John the Baptist who came in Matthew chapter 3 and began to baptize the baptism of repentance. And so by this time, we know from Matthew chapter 4, verse 12, that John, their leader, he's locked up, he's arrested, and he's in prison. But it appears that his disciples, they're still pretty much active as a group. Now, they don't have their leader, John the Baptist, directing them, yet they continue to practice this religious uh, duty fasting, similar to the way that John had practiced in the wilderness. And if you recall, as we studied through Matthew chapter 3 and 4, John was in the wilderness. He was dressed in a very funny way. He ate certain things that only he ate. So, so he was an ascetic, right? He, he left the ordinary manner of life. He lived in the wilderness. And so you could pretty much summarize his whole lifestyle as fasting, The issue here, however, is this. By Matthew chapter 9, here's the issue. These disciples, they know better. They were instructed, disciples of John, to follow Christ by John himself. In fact, before John was arrested, we know from John chapter 3, and I want you to go there with me, John chapter 3, a very famous passage, right? John chapter 3. 3.16, we're a little bit later here in verses 25. 
John instructed them, his disciples, to look to Jesus because Jesus was the promised Messiah. And look what happens. In verse 25, John writes, Therefore there arose a discussion on the part of John's disciples with a Jew about purification. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you beyond the Jordan to whom you have testified, behold, he is baptizing and all are coming to him. John answered and said, a man can receive nothing unless it has been given him from heaven. You yourselves are my witnesses that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent ahead of him. He who has the bride is the bridegroom, but the friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. So this joy of my has been made full. He must increase, but I must decrease. So in verse 26, there is a certain rivalry that, that's forming in, in these disciples' minds. They're basically thinking, well, we were here before these disciples. We were here before Jesus. Like this whole baptism deal, we did it prior to him getting into it. Like for crying out loud, John, you're the John, John the Baptist. That's your deal. Why is he over there doing his own little mission and his own little group? What is going on? And John says in verses 27 and 28, friends, you got it all twisted. You have it all twisted. We're only doing that which we were appointed to do for a time. It's temporary. I'm not the important one, John says. I'm not the Messiah. I'm not the main character of the story. This one there, Jesus, he is the bridegroom. John's like, man, I'm just, I'm just part of the wedding. I'm happy to be in the wedding party. That, that's why I'm here. I am rejoicing just to stand next to him and tell all of you to follow him because that's exactly what I'm doing. He says, Jesus has the bride. Jesus has the church. He has the people of God. They belong to Jesus, not me. So don't follow me, follow him. And in fact, in verse 30, look at this. He says, he must increase. In fact, listen, if you're getting all riled up about his success now, Jesus' success, it's going to get better. <laughs> He's only going to increase. And as Jesus increases and more, more people are following him, guess what I'm going to do? I'm going to decrease. And soon after this, he's taken into prison. And soon after, he'll be put to death. His ministry is over. What was his ministry? To look to Jesus and say, hey, I, I'm just preparing. Here's, here is the Messiah, Jesus Christ. In Matthew 21, 32 Jesus says, for John came to you in the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him. In the way of righteousness. What was this way of righteousness? Was it, was it his baptism? Was it this ascetic practice that, that his disciples were to follow? Absolutely not. Go back to Matthew 11. Matthew 11, I, I want to read a couple more verses, beginning with verse 9. Matthew 11 Verse 9, this is Jesus' tribute to John. This is, this is what he speaks. The Messiah speaks of his own forerunner, his own best men. And he says this in verse 9, but what did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you. And one who is more than a prophet this is the one about whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way before you. And then he drops this bomb. Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has not arisen anyone greater than John the Baptist. This is amazing. John's way of righteousness, Jesus says, was to point to me was to point to Christ, not to establish some separate sect or, or accumulate for himself followers and friends. No, John, Jesus says that the scripture foretold of a man who would be the last prophet of the Old Testament period, the greatest, in fact, of prophets, who would come to prepare a way for Jesus Christ. In fact, the greatness of this one, 
because he says here, there has not arisen anyone greater than John the Baptist. And, and the reason why he says that is because the greatness of John the Baptist is directly related to his proximity to Jesus Christ. He saw the Messiah. He sees Jesus Christ. Everybody else in the Old Testament, all the prophets, as they spoke of him and as they anticipated the new covenant and this new king, this David who would come and who would rule, they only saw faintly and and they, first uh, Peter says, they went back to their scriptures and they studied to see who is this person, what time, what manner, what is going on, when will he come? They did not know who this one is. And Jesus says, this is the greatest one. Why? Because he saw me and yet he's still part of the Old Testament period. John the Baptist. This one is truly great because of his great responsibility. Yet, yet, look at the rest of verse 11. He doesn't stop there and he says, yet, the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. Listen, he says, in Christ's kingdom, the tax collector is greater than John the Baptist. This is how great and how glorious Christ's kingdom is. It's a completely new revelation. It's a new period, new time frame. And so he says, on this side, John the Baptist is the greatest. But once I come and once I bring in and accomplish and establish the new covenant, the least is greater than him. So it's almost like a rebuke. Why? Listen, friends, John the Baptist followers, why exactly are you still following John? Why are you still holding on to this religious tradition? Notice, notice what they ask. Why do we and Pharisees fast? Instead of obeying John and, and looking to Jesus Christ, they're being influenced by the Pharisees who, who fasted often. In fact, the Pharisees, they fasted twice a week on Monday and Thursday. We remember that, ta- or, uh, that Pharisees who prayed in the temple, right? I thank you that I'm not like this tax collector. Why? Because I fast twice a week. It's a badge of honor. Their their fast was accompanied by a spirit of mourning and and sadness. For the Pharisees, it it was a way to show their humility and holiness before the people. They were very proud of their religiosity and were not afraid to put a spotlight on their righteousness. And that is why Jesus calls them out in Matthew chapter 6, if you remember our study there. For John's disciple, their fast also probably involved sadness and mourning over the loss of their leader. John the Baptist was in prison. But here's the issue. Instead of looking to Jesus and believing in him who'd be their righteousness, they prefer to continue to establish their own by just doing these religious works. And friends, as is always the case, think about this. When your primary concern is working for man's applause to look right in people's eyes, you tend to focus on the sins and the apparent shortcomings of others, don't you? And so this is the case here. Like, why are they sinning? Why are, you, why are they not fasting like we are? This is what they were doing. This is not right, they conclude. And consider Jesus' answer here. I mean, it's, it's really amazing. Um, so often when he's confronted by various groups or individuals, Jesus here employs a tactic of answering a question with a question. And this is great. Jesus answers their question about fasting by not referring to fasting at all. Notice. Because with their question, they raise a deeper issue. It's not just like, hey, can we fast? Should we fast? Why aren't there fasting? They raise a deeper question. So the question is why? Why? And Jesus here says, it is totally inappropriate for them to fast. And I want you to notice from his response in verse 15, three gospel truths. Three gospel truths. Number one, the bridegroom is here and his name is Jesus. Jesus is claiming to be the bridegroom of God's people. And this is the primary theological truth about Jesus in this 
passage. But what does it mean? Well, in scripture, God uses many metaphors to describe his relationship with us, his people. For instance, God is the king and we are the people of his kingdom. First Peter 2.9 says so. We are a royal race, right? A priesthood. But Christ also refers to himself as the head and we are his body, Ephesians 4.2. In another passage, he is the shepherd and we are his sheep, Psalm 23 and John 10. He comes in and he says, I'm the good shepherd. And one other metaphor God uses in the Bible to highlight how intimate and how comprehensive our relationship with him is, is this metaphor of marriage. God is our groom and we are his bride. I mean, this is, this is beautiful. This is so intimate. And friends, when, when we read this verse, verse 15, when he says, if you go back to Matthew chapter 9, verse 15, Jesus answered and said, the attendants of the bridegroom cannot mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them. When we read this verse, it doesn't impact us as it would the Old Testament Jew who was very familiar with this language. For Jesus to claim to be the bridegroom was for him to claim to be God. I am the very Yahweh who revealed himself to the son of Israel as their husband. This is amazing. Isaiah 54, 5 says, For your husband is your maker, whose name is the Lord of hosts, and your redeemer is Holy One of Israel, who is called the God of all the earth. Jesus claims to be the bridegroom here. He claims to be the maker, their God. I am God. Just a radical statement. Isaiah 62, verse 5. For as a young man marries a virgin, so your sons will marry you. And as a bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so your God will rejoice over you. I mean, Jesus claims to be the bridegroom who comes to assemble his bride, his people. There's another passage in Hosea chapter 2. Matthew just quoted Hosea, Hosea 6.6, right? I desire loving kindness, mercy, compassion, then sacrifice. So probably this theme still remains and echoes in his mind. And and look at Hosea, Hosea chapter 2, go there. Hosea chapter 2 verse 16 says this, it will come about in that day, declares the Lord, that you will call me Ishi. Ishi in Nazbi here, in some of your other translations, like if you have ESV, it says, and you will call me my husband. That's the translation of Ishi, my man, my husband. And, and, and he continues on in verse 18 and says, In that day, I will also make a covenant with them, with the beasts of the field, the birds of the sky, and the creeping things of the ground. And I will abolish the bow, the sword, and the war from the land. And I will make them lie down in safety. I will betroth you to me forever. Yes, I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice, in loving kindness and in compassion. And I will betroth you to me in faithfulness. Then you will know the Lord. God here is promising to make a new covenant with his people. In fact, a marriage covenant, which will be based on his own faithfulness, his own righteousness, his own loving kindness, his own compassion. Not yours, mine. I will do this in righteousness, loving kindness, compassion, and faithfulness. It won't be like the previous covenant, like the old covenant. And so the Jewish nation interpreted this language of marriage in direct relation to the coming of the Messiah. They looked forward with this great anticipation to this marriage relationship with their God. This this practice also of, of, of fasting here twice a week, it wasn't an Old Testament command. But it had started between the the two testaments. You know, there is the Old Testament, and then there's the 400 silent years where God did not speak at all. And then 
Matthew or, or with the arrival of Jesus, then he continued his revelation. So 400 years, and during these 400 silent years is what they called these um, rituals, these practices started. And they started specifically as a way to long for and to anticipate the coming of the Messiah. And you can imagine the surprise of, of some and, and maybe the excitement of others when Jesus says, friends, the bridegroom is here. Stop fasting. My disciples don't fast because the promise that was made from long ago that God would betroth himself to his people in righteousness is now beginning to be fulfilled. There's no reason to be sorrowful. There's no reason to mourn. I am your husband. Wow, what an amazing truth. And this shouldn't be a shocker, right, to us who have the entire gospel of Matthew. In fact, if you've been with us from the end of last year, as we looked at Matthew chapter by chapter, he's been telling us all along that Jesus is the promised one. In Matthew 1, Jesus comes to save his people from their sins. In Matthew chapter 2, Jesus is the ruler who came to shepherd his people. Matthew chapter 3, Jesus is God's beloved son. Matthew 4, Jesus is the great light of the world. Matthew 5 and 7, the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is the one who came to fulfill all righteousness and usher in his kingdom. Matthew chapter 8, just recently studied, Jesus is the son of God who controls the wind and frees the captives from devil's oppression. You have to be more than a man. To do that, you have to be God. Matthew chapter 9, Jesus is the son of God who forgives sin. And now he says in 9, 14 through 17, he says, I am the bridegroom of the people of God. Wow. He wants us to see. He wants us to believe that Jesus is the promised Messiah who came to fulfill the old covenant and to establish the new he doesn't fix the old covenant. He fulfills it, right? He, fulfill, he doesn't abolish it. He fulfills it. That's what Matthew chapter 5 verse 17 says. I came to fulfill. I didn't come to do away with it. And by fulfilling all of the requirements, he alone possesses the righteousness which he grants to us by grace through faith. So this is the first reality. This is the first gospel truth. The bridegroom is here, church, and his name is Jesus. I want you to see second truth. There is great joy in the presence of Jesus. There is great joy in the presence of Jesus. The attendants of the bridegroom cannot mourn, Jesus says, since I am here. Can they? Absolutely not. It's a rhetorical question that expects an answer. No, no. Any mourning, any sorrow, any fasting, it's totally inappropriate is what he's saying. The timing, what's going on in the redemption history, this is totally inappropriate. What you're asking them to do doesn't fit the bill, doesn't fit the occasion. I mean, think about this. Do you ever go to a wedding to fast? If you do, shame on you. Maybe you're, you're holding on to, to a great uh, uh, fasting program or some kind of... Uh, um, whatever, diet of some kind, and, and, and you don't really participate and enjoy it. And even at the wedding, you sit there and you're, um, you're just doing your thing, right? Uh, when you go to the wedding, you eat. Party time, friends. That's why you, you come in. They've prepared a feast for you, and you participate in the joy of the couple by eating and feasting. That's what you do. That's the only appropriate response. Joy, joy. Joy. It's inappropriate, Jesus says, for my disciples to mourn because this is a time for celebration. These sinners, right, all of the disciples of Christ, including Matthew, the tax collectors, they are enjoying my presence. I am with them. How can they mourn? And wasn't this the point of the angel's announcements, announcement in Luke chapter 2 verse 10, when they came upon the shepherds in the field and they say, behold, I bring you good news of great joy, which will be for all the people. This is the fulfillment. I am here. Jesus is here. Rejoice. Be glad. 
overflow with joy. The gospel, friends, the gospel brings great joy for God's people. His disciples are enjoying, rejoicing in the presence of Christ. And and the third truth that I want you to see is that Jesus invites us to the feast. Jesus invites us to the feast. He, He describes his disciples here in verse 15 as attendants of the bridegroom. The wedding guests literally means the sons of the wedding hall. They were the ones who stood right next to the groom and and they actually played an essential part in the wedding ceremony. They partied for seven days, a full week. And they did a lot of preparation leading up to that week. But when, when that week started, when that groom came in, the party started and it didn't stop. Okay, there was a lot of turmoil. There was a lot of heartache before in preparation. But man, when we start partying, seven days. These disciples, they are the inner circle is what he's saying. The attendants of the bridegroom, they're my inner circle. And with that, Jesus here, he hearkens back to the passage that we already read, John 2 or 329, where where John says, the friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him, he rejoices greatly. I think Jesus is saying to the disciples of John, why don't you start following me and stop following John? Because that's what John wanted you to do. Married folks who are here, there are a lot of you who are married, go back and remember the time of your wedding. I know it's hard for some, You've been married for a while. Some are just recently married. Did you, did you sell tickets to your wedding? Did you sell tickets to your wedding for your guests to attend? Or, or did you prepare everything? And you and your family paid for everything? You set the table? You prepped the program, the food, the drinks, Everything. And then you sent out an invitation and you said, come, come, it's free. All you got to do is just rejoice with me. Everything is prepped. Come and enjoy and share my joy. Listen, friends, this is what Jesus does. This is what he did. He is the reason for this celebration. He gathers sinners in. He forgives them. Why? Because he paid for them. He alone pays for them. No one assists him. No one helps him out. No one pitches in. He comes here because he alone can save sinners from their sin. On that terrible cross. Which is even anticipated here in this passage. Isn't it? Look at verse 15 at the end. But the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast. This word taken away, snatched up violently. Many see this as a, a reference to the cross that, that, that goes back as far back as Isaiah 53, verse 8, where, where Isaiah prophesies of the suffering servant, and he says, by oppression and judgment, he was taken away. Jesus here speaks of a time when he'll no longer be with them after he's crucified. And we know that even in the book of Acts, his disciples and the churches, they continue to fast even after his resurrection and ascension into heaven. And so during this church age, church period, the disciples of Christ continue to fast. So so Jesus says, when I'm gone, then they will mourn. So, so here's the point. If you're, if you're sitting here and you're, you're asking yourself, when is he going to get to fasting? What about fasting? Can we fast? Should we fast? Here's, here's the answer. Why should we fast? Well, we fast because we, we seek and plead for his return. That's why the church in Revelation cries out, come, Lord Jesus, come back. We want to see you. We want to experience this intimate fellowship and relationship with you once again. So should we fast today? Must we fast? Real quick, as, a, as an aside, if you remember, Pastor Jan preached from Matthew chapter 6 
a passage that addressed fasting, and he reiterated that fasting is not a hunger strike before God to manipulate him to give you something. I'm not going to eat until you give me something. That's not fasting. You know, in times when you feel the weight of sin pressing in on you, whether it's your own sin or those sins around you, and you long for Christ's return, you fast. He doesn't command here that they fast. But when you feel like you're doing great battle with sin, whether your own or, or maybe you're just experiencing the effects of the fall around you, and you're compelled to put aside everything and just to see God's face and to long for the return of Christ, fast. It is not a command, but it's a present age reality. But here, Jesus' point is not about fasting. It's about invitation to feast. Come and feast. Just like his disciples, we are invited. We have the invitation to come and to eat of Christ to be in fellowship with him. Friends, we are not worthy to be invited, yet Jesus welcomes us to come. How do you come to Christ? How did they come to Christ? Only by faith. And Matthew goes out of his way to highlight faith. Faith in healing, faith in being healed, faith in receiving forgiveness of sin, only by faith, not on the basis of any work of righteousness, not on the basis of a promise that you'll be faithful follower of Jesus if he forgives you. No, we believe the gospel truth and we simply cling to the cross by faith alone. So ask yourself this morning, friend, does the presence of Christ and his righteousness in your life bring you great joy? Are you rejoicing this morning, sitting here and contemplating of who Christ is and what he had accomplished and what he brought and what he did personally in your life? The presence of Christ and his righteousness, does it bring you great joy? Do you overflow with thankfulness because of his grace and mercy towards you? Or are you still burdened and you let that burden of your sin drag you down to a place where you are trying to pay your own way into the kingdom? If that's you, is that you like the Pharisees and like the disciples of John? Jesus has come. Friends, he is for you. He has made a way. I mean, think about this picture of marriage. Think about this picture of Christ being the bridegroom and we are the bride. Jesus says, I am committed to you guys. God is committed to us at all times. I mean, he has pledged a covenant of his steadfast and faithful love towards all who are in Christ. Friends, there is security in this covenant. Nothing, nothing, absolutely nothing will separate you from your Lord, you are sealed by the blood of Christ. Why? Because this covenant, it depends on his faithfulness and loving kindness, not yours. And you can take that to the bank. So how should we respond? Jesus says, enter. Why are you standing outside wondering why we're feasting? Enter, enter into my joy. Enter into the joy of Christ. Rejoice because the groom has arrived. Become his bride, overflow with joy, and await for his coming once again. And then he moves on in verses 16 and 17, and, and these are just the illustration that quickly illustrate what he said before. That verse 15 and 16, they're the heart of the entire passage. That's why we spent a lot of time going through this illustration. But the next two illustrations, they just help us unpack the point already made. He had just answered their question by stating who he is. And now he teaches how they and, and us, church, we in turn must respond to him. So consider the second implication of this passage, and that is believe in Christ. Believe in Christ. He established a new way. 
Both illustrations here in verses 16 and 17, they illustrate and they teach one point, and that is this. Christ is not an an add-on to an old system, but a bridegroom who establishes a new and better way. In essence, he was telling his disciples this. He says, don't practice the faith that only anticipates Christ, like the Old Testament. The Old Testament anticipated Christ. He says, don't practice that faith, but practice faith that centers on Christ, who's already here. I'm here already, so come hang out with me. Come spend time. Rejoice with me. Jesus came to inaugurate a new way of life. And so he talks about these two illustrations. One is this old garment and a new cloth, and then the wineskins, new and old wineskins. So the garment. The focus of this illustration is on the inadequacy or the deficiency of the old way. So Christ here, he says, he came to establish a new way of life because the old one had served its purpose. That's it. It's it's pointed to Christ, accomplished his purpose, we're done. The old garment. I mean, anyone has an old pair of jeans that are so worn you can see right through them and you're afraid to throw them away. Why? Because finally you feel like, man, I just broke them in. I, I can't throw them away. Right? But, but as you continue to worm, you develop a tear and, and you then take your nice pair of jeans maybe or, or some other, and you, like a new piece of denim, and you stitch it right on top of that hole on that tear. And then you throw it into the wash and when you take it out, what happens? That patch is gone. Why? Because your old garment is so shrunk already that when this new patch is stuck to it, right? and water is introduced into the equation, it starts to shrink and it pulls away from the old garment. And he says, Jesus says here, a worse tear results. A worse tear results. Jesus says, no one does that. And here's what he's ultimately saying. You need to change the way you see and the way you relate to me. I did not come to patch the old. I came to establish the new. See what he's saying here? So you don't patch me onto existing life, your, your own way, your previous way of doing things, right, to your current religious practices. I'm not compatible with anything that came before me. Do you see it? He says, I did not come to, to patch the old covenant or Judaism. I came to fulfill and to establish the new in fact, this word old here, this, this, it literally means worn out or, or former, no longer useful, this piece of cloth, garment. That old thing served its purpose. It can't be stitched onto your old religious system. I've come to establish a new and better way is what Jesus is saying. And then in verse 17, this illustration of old wineskins, this illustration focuses on the substance of who Jesus is. So the first one focused on the inadequacy of the old. Here, it's on the substance and the quality of the new. And so this is the illustration here that he gives them that everybody in that world understood. They made wine by taking animal skin. They would dry it. They would sew the edges around feet and all the other edges, and it would literally be like an animal replica they would leave the neck open and they would pour grape juice to the neck and then they would add all kinds of other things like sugars and then they would zip it all up, they would sew it all up and they would just leave it there. And as the fermentation process would continue to take place, right, uh, gases would release from this substance and because of the gases, this animal skin begins to stretch, stretch, stretch and it becomes bloated as as if it's an animal. And they would let that process, you know, uh, through its normal course, and then they would cut it open, pour the wine, and they would enjoy the wine. But if you repeat this process over using the same skins, they would burst because, because they were previously stretched to their max. They didn't have any more elasticity left in them. They were stretched completely. And here's the point. The gospel of Jesus Christ cannot be contained or fit into the old structures of the old covenant. It is too heavy. It is too great of a reality. I want you to notice something here in your 
verse in verse 17, he uses a few words, new, new, fresh, new, but, but in the original, they're different. They're different words. They're all translated here as new or fresh. So when he says new wine, um, th- the, this term new is in reference to age, like time, progressive. So you, you know this, but now because of a different epoch, different time, now it's this, new in terms of time. But when he says into fresh wineskins, some of your translation says new wineskins, this term new, it means quality, like uh, something that's previously unknown. So the gospel of Christ is, is new in time in terms of its progressive revelation. That comes in the New Testament. The Old Testament pointed to something. The, Old Testament, the New Testament reveals something. But also, this gospel of Christ, it requires new structure, a different form altogether. Jesus came to fulfill the requirements of all the forms of the Old Testament and died to establish the new way of life. It says, this is the real deal. You can't take me, you can't patch me up, encompass me in something and pour it into the old. No, I, I need something new. Prophets like Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel all spoke of the coming new covenant and Jesus says, it is now here. I came to establish it. In fact, if you read the New Testament, the New Testament authors, they quite often point to the old and saying the old just was a, it was just a shadow. Like Hebrews chapter one, verse chapter 10, verse one, for the law, since it was only a shadow of good things to come and not the very form or the true form of things. So he's saying, that's not true. What is true? The true form came in Christ. Or Colossians 2, 16 and 17, therefore, no one is to act as your judge in regards to food or drink or in respect to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath day. And he sums it all up and he says, all of these things, they are a mere shadow of what is to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. He is the real deal. This is what everyone anticipated. He's here. And then you remember in Matthew chapter 26 when he's around the table with his disciples. Remember last supper, he pours the wine and he lifts up the cup and he says, for this is my blood of the covenant, of the new covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. And so here's the point that The only way new covenant realities can be adequately expressed in a new covenant way is through Jesus Christ. He is the substance. He is the structure. He is everything. And it is expressed by this ongoing fellowship with Christ himself. The new way of life then cannot be expressed apart from this deep abiding love relationship with Jesus, the groom, the bridegroom. Paul himself, he indicated this much when he wrote in Philippians chapter 3. I want you to hear just everything that we've discussed so far. Now, as we read Philippians chapter 3, verse 7, just think about what Paul is saying here. But whatever things were gained to me, these things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things. And count them but rubbish so that I may gain Christ and may be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his suffering being conformed to his death in order that I may attain the resurrection from the dead." Again, friends, we need to ask ourselves, are we simply patching our lives with Jesus or or have we, like Paul, traded our filthy rags of righteousness to be clothed with the righteousness of Christ by believing in him? Are we going through the religious motions by, by checking off boxes that make us appear religious or, or are we responding by faith and living a life of devotion to Jesus Christ in view of what he had accomplished for us. Not religious motions, but religious affections. And so in conclusion, I have a third point. Value Christ then. 
value Christ because he is the center of life. Jesus has come. And after his coming, he is central. Everything that preceded him pointed to him. Everything that follows him explains him. He is the heart of, of everything we believe. He's not just another Adam or, or Abraham or, or Moses or David. No, all of these men, they reveal a need for someone greater, someone more superior to them. Jesus comes and he says, I am here, friends. He is the center of our life. Everything revolves around him. So let me ask you, do you rejoice in Christ alone? Do you believe in Christ alone? Don't ever buy this garbage that you can just try on Jesus and if he doesn't work, well, you can go back to whatever it is that you were doing before. He's not a patch. Jesus is Lord who says, I destroy everything so that you can have it all. Me. That's a beautiful thing. Do you value Christ alone? I'll end by reading a short poem found in the Valley of Vision that is called Christ Alone. And this unknown author, he says, Oh God, your main plan and the end of your will is to make Christ glorious and beloved in heaven where he is now ascended, where one day all the elect will behold his glory and love and glorify him forever. Though here I love him but little, may this be my portion at last. In this world, you have given me a beginning. One day it will be perfected in the realm above. You have helped me to see and know Christ, though obscurely, to take him, receive him, to possess him, love him, to bless him in my heart, mouth, and life. Let me study and stand for discipline and all the ways of worship out of love for Christ and to show my thankfulness, to seek and know his will from love to hold it in love and daily to care for and keep this state of heart. Our Father, we are humbled by the fact that we are invited into your presence because of everything that Christ had accomplished. Help us, Lord, today, this afternoon, this week, just never to escape this awareness that we are welcome to feast with Christ. And may we do that, even today, as we enjoy our meals. Help us to know that you call us to have a meal with you. That way is always open. It is the way of grace. By faith, we thank you. We praise you. Amen.